Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hello and welcome. My name is Chad Kruger, and I will be the host of this AUKUS Amplified podcast. Today, I have Dr. Sean Patel of the Kaiser Permanente in Irvine, California, and Dr. Charles Lowry of Washington University of St. Louis with me to talk about patient engagement platforms. These types of platforms, like smartphone applications and computer interfaces, will continue to improve in both design and usability, all of which will allow us to continue to advance the care that we provide to our patients. This is a growing interest to many of us in the field, so I'm excited to see where this discussion takes us. Of note, we have no disclosures or financial relationships with any of the products that would be discussed on the show. With that out of the way, Sean and Charles, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having us, Chad. We're excited to be here. Thanks, Chad. Glad to be here and looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, thanks for joining us as well. So, Sean, I'm going to start things off with you. What are some of the opportunities that you see for virtualizing care in hip and knee arthroplasty? Yeah, I think this is a very prudent topic to discuss. You know, there's lots of opportunities, including patient messaging platforms, objective data and analytics with patient wearables. And I think uh, the thing that I'll focus most on is virtualizing our clinic visits. These can range anywhere from physical therapy visits to actually our surgeon visits as well. For instance, surgeon clinic visits, usually we talk about virtualizing the care mostly for post-operative visits for checking in on patients' progress immediately post-operatively and answering any questions they may have. You can take pictures of the wounds. They can demonstrate motion, particularly if you have any video-based applications that you're able to see what's going on with the actual patient as opposed to just a phone conversation. And if you have any uh, patient wearables, you may actually have some objective data that you can correlate along with what you're hearing from the patient's perspective and help give them some feedback on their progress post-operatively. In regards to other types of visits, it may not seem like you can do new consultations through uh, virtual visits, but uh, depending on your healthcare system, it may actually be possible, particularly in healthcare systems that have closed networks where you have a lot of information already available to you through the primary care providers or other specialists. You may actually have a great deal of information about the patient already before even having met them. And uh, you may actually know what treatment plan is best for the patient without much work on your end without even meeting the patient. And then once you meet them virtually, you can uh, eliminate all the time you may have had in in figuring out what their history was because you already have access to it through your electronic medical record. This can be a benefit if uh, this potentially quickens the access to specialists in your healthcare system and decrease the wait time that patients may have for in-person appointments. It might be a little bit harder to build patient relationships this way, but uh, if you spin it the right way, I think this hurdle can be easily overcome, and I think the patients see a lot of benefit by being able to see specialists quicker that they'll get over that as well and actually be uh, very happy to not have a lot of their time wasted and, and having to come in and drive in and look for parking. And a lot of the downtime that happens in the clinic visits is essentially eliminated when they have a virtual visit just scheduled for them. In addition to new consults, it's a little bit easier to even do some of your return visits virtually because the uh, the issue about a patient relationship is already established if you've already seen them in person, and then you can just get right to the point. The objective of the visit can be addressed pretty early on, and you can essentially see more patients in any given day when you don't have to worry about rooming patients and the extra time that's taken up in, uh, in the clinic setting. 
Hey, Sean, so, you know, you sound pretty knowledgeable on this. You've got some great ideas to potentially improve the efficiency of care. The demand for hip and knee arthroplasty continues to grow worldwide. What's your experience been with this yourself? Yes, so my experience is actually pretty significant in, in virtual visits. I, I regularly conduct phone-based visits for all visit types, like I mentioned, new consults, return visits, as well as post-operative visits. And as a result, I actually build in several virtual visits into my clinic days uh, and reserve some time specifically for virtual type visits. And I do practice in an integrated closed healthcare system with a single EMR, which does help being able to access patient information easily. So I think that does help me a lot in being able to be successful with virtual visits. How much time are you building into your clinics for these virtual visits? And, and is this something you let the patients know of right off the bat? Yes. When the patient's visits are scheduled, they're given the uh, opportunity to choose either a virtual visit or an in-person visit. So a lot of them will opt for the virtual visits if they geographically live far away or if they know that their issue can be addressed simply with a phone call. And I usually build in about two hours per clinic day, one hour in the morning and one hour in the afternoon. Wow. Uh, that's a significant chunk of time. So it's certainly something that obviously your healthcare system is bought into as well. Ultimately, uh, even with the significant amount of time that's reserved in relation to the total time in a day, you're essentially able to see more patients uh, in a given day. You can essentially see more people virtually in one hour than you can in person in one hour. So, Sean, these are video visits, phone call visits, or messenger visits. How have you typically handled these virtual visits? Yeah, personally, in my practice, I've typically done uh, phone call visits. We do have the ability to do video visits as well, but I've found that technologically it's a lot easier for everybody to be on a phone as opposed to worrying about access issues with video uh, capabilities on the patient end. And a lot of our population is geriatric and elderly, and they, they do know how to use phones, and sometimes it's a lot more challenging to get them to use something like a tablet or an iPad or a video chat system on the computer. What uh, demographic of patients have you seen really take to this sort of newer style of seeing a doctor? Is it the older patients who don't want to come into the office because it's a bit of a burden for them to get out of the house, or is it the younger patients who are a little bit more tech savvy? It's been all comers. I think uh, the more um, tech savvy patients do appreciate that more, especially those that currently have occupations and can't get a lot of time off of work. But conversely, you also have a lot of patients that are geriatric that rely on uh, some of their providers for transportation into the clinic. So it ends up being a good mix of uh, all comers. So clearly, if you're spending 25% of your day on clinic on uh, these virtual type visits, it's something that you have found beneficial and your practice has probably found beneficial. How about some of like the nurses and medical assistants, anyone from the office? Does everyone seem to benefit from these types of visits in terms of efficiency and workflow? Ultimately, I'm able to get through uh, more patients in a given day, and uh, a lot of the issues that might have required an in-person visit historically are able to be addressed through a simple phone call for just a simple question the patient may have had. And so then that saves up uh, a lot of the nurse triage and medical assistant time for scheduling appointments, getting patient vitals and rooming them, and all that stuff is eliminated essentially for just something that could be easily addressed through a five, 10-minute phone call. So, Sean, you mentioned potentially using, you know, photographs, objective patient data from wearable devices. Have you started integrating into those into your practice yet? Yeah, I haven't done much stuff with uh, patient wearables, but I've done a lot with pictures. So uh, our EMR has the ability for patients to 
email and or upload pictures into the system directly into their chart. And so if there's any, for example, concerns with a wound after surgery, then they're able to just simply take a picture and send it in. And then we can take a look on our end. And if it's something that does warrant an in-person evaluation, we can have them brought in. But if it's something that just requires some reassurance, we can just do that through email or through a phone call. I think that's been a tremendous help because a lot of the visits historically have been for wound checks. And uh, if we can eliminate the burden on our entire clinic and clinic staff for a lot of the issues that might not need to be addressed in person, then it can increase the efficiency of our healthcare system. I've been doing the same thing actually with our EMR. Kind of easy questions from patients come through the patient portal that helps clear the backlog that the nurses have on their voicemail sometimes and get questions addressed in a timely fashion. And then, you know, the pictures of the wounds have just been huge for us because, like you mentioned, a lot of those early post-operative concerns, either from the patients or from home health agencies, are concerning the surgical wound. And a quick picture can make a huge difference in either having a patient come in, drive in two hours from home, or just tell them everything's okay and we'll see at your scheduled visit. So I found tremendous benefit in the use of that technology as well with REMR. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, think I think the think... patients appreciate being able to have a response pretty quickly for a concern that they find very concerning to them, not knowing what's going on and having to wait a couple of days or a week to get into the office versus getting an email or phone call response within 24 to 48 hours is a great service to them as well. Certainly, there's been plenty of articles written about the importance and the, and the utility of having pictures for patients to send in virtually instead of having to come into the office really decreases the unnecessary visits and can put patients and clinicians at ease for sure. And again, I think it's something that's just going to continue to grow and figure out how to implement that best in your practice would be something we all have to consider as we go forward. So Charles, Sean's talked a lot about his experience in terms of his patient engagement platform and how he utilizes it at his facility and for his practice. What do you do in your practice? So, you know, as I mentioned, we've been doing currently a lot of phone calls have been replaced by the messenger application or emails uh, where patients are able to get quicker answers, potentially answers from me or the nurse, depending on the severity of the question. And then we've also done a lot of pictures of the wounds for post-op visits. Beyond that, I think we have some big plans to go further and use patient wearables uh, in some upcoming studies we're planning. In particular, I'm really excited about the patient wearables that will allow us to monitor activity levels. We can monitor anything from step counts to sleep to patient vital signs. I don't think we really know what to make of all that data yet, but I know there's ongoing research at several institutions using this technology to potentially pair these data points with the current validated patient reported outcome measures and potentially even replace those with passively collected patient data in the future. And then, you know, from a preoperative standpoint, patient education can be huge with some of these patient engagement platforms. Most institutions, including ours, have journey guides or patient information packets that outline the preoperative and postoperative process. And I've just seen a lot of patients get overwhelmed by the amount of information that's in those. And some of these applications have the ability to slowly trickle that information in via text messages or via notifications in the app at the time the patient actually needs that information. So, for example, preoperatively, patients can be notified when it's time to pick up their nasal swabs or soap for decolonization, uh, you know, night before surgery, give them any tidbits about NPO status or fluids that they're allowed to drink in the morning, um, and just simple things like reminding them of their surgical arrival time or giving them a map of where they're supposed to go. 
all these things really improve the patient experience. And I think by doing that also decrease the burden on the, the office staff and limit the number of unnecessary phone calls. Have you found that patients really enjoy most of these things, or at least most patients? Or have you found a subgroup of patients? You know, Sean mentioned some older patients maybe having some difficulties with these. Uh, what's your experience been in terms of patient feedback? I've been pretty pleasantly surprised that actually it really isn't age that matters. Uh, most patients are able to use cell phones nowadays. And if you pay attention when you walk into your next patient's room who's a little bit older, uh, you might be surprised to find them texting um, on their phones or using applications that you might not have expected them to be doing. So I think as long as the applications are built in a user-friendly way, these uh, sorts of solutions are probably open to patients of all ages. Okay. And then in terms of determining which platforms you're trying to use, how have you and your department gone about trying to figure out, you know, what do you want to try out? What do you think is best for your practice? I think this field is very rapidly evolving right now, and there's a lot of players. Five, ten years from now, we may all be using one or two different systems uh, that have built on the successes and failures of the current generations. So it can be a little bit difficult to pick and choose which system you're going to use. Uh, the ones that we're currently using uh, primarily for research applications looking at this field, we picked them based on features that we were interested in looking at. So, for example, like I mentioned, some of the patient education information is an area of interest of mine. So we picked an application that has the ability to trickle those tidbits of patient education and information in slowly over time. Uh, and then the other one we're looking at is a smart brace that actually monitors patient activity, motion, compliance with physical therapy. And then the real exciting part of that one is it actually gamifies the recovery. So it takes what it considers to be the average recovery from a knee replacement and then pits you against that. And that, I think, really drives most people to recover a little bit faster and better. We obviously don't have any evidence for that right now. Uh, but the gamification field is huge and is shown to have benefits in, in other uh, fields. So I'm excited to see if that aspect of it uh, really drives improvement in patient recovery process. So you can get your patients as competitive as the surgeon. You know, that's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, I'm not sure in terms of you know, HIPAA compliance, how far this will go. But certainly if you were getting your knee replaced and I was getting mine replaced, get it done a day or two after each other and compete against each other for who's going to have the fastest recovery. That's certainly compelling. I can't say I'm too familiar with any of, any of that type of technology, but it certainly makes sense from a, a common sense standpoint. I think you bring up a good point in terms of determining kind of what you want out of this technology to help you guide what systems you pick. Because I think each practice really needs to have an, an honest look at, at kind of what problems they're trying to solve when it comes down to choosing kind of what platform they want or what application to buy. We all care about patient satisfaction. Uh, we all care about communication and we all care about readmissions and, and post-acute care services. If the practice feels like the patients aren't cared for, then having something like this that lets uh, people have two-way communication easier may be certainly a benefit. And I, I think there's certainly some systems that have reported over 90% usage rate for patients when they've been implemented. Some have a little bit less. Uh, again, some of that may have to do with patient selection and so forth as well. But I think any practice that's looking to improve their patient satisfaction these types of systems and patient engagement platforms probably have a role and it kind of ties into the communication aspect. You know, I, I know for myself, there's nothing more frustrating than getting told by a nurse two days later after a patient's called in and they may have a problem and somehow that message didn't get relayed to you in clinic or you were busy in the OR, you're on call and I'm working in a different hospital. There's certainly plenty of gaps in patient care in this day and age. You know, we're all kind of spread thin in that regard. 
so trying to figure out a better system to allow us to prevent the, the phone tag game and not just having someone on the other end of the phone either saying that we'll call you back and that may not happen expeditiously or conversely just telling every patient to go to the emergency department to get evaluated, which also isn't very good use of our money. You know, these types of platforms can certainly play a role with that. And that also ties into the readmission part of things, right? So we talked about the wound care and wound evaluation already with pictures, but these types of platforms, if that's a problem for your practice, can easily, you know, decrease either unnecessary visits or, you know, worse, patients not feeling like they have a a way to communicate with you and and having a significant problem and not being able to get a hold of you and, and having something catastrophic happen. So I think those are all important points that practices really need to pay attention to when it comes down to determining, you know, what platform is best for us, what should we invest in, what shouldn't we invest in, and really trying to decide how to make a strategy for incorporating these types of uh, applications going forward. Yeah, I think the really exciting sort of, you know, sort of holy grail with this technology is going to be once we collect enough big data, we'll be able to potentially use some of these more passive data points to identify problems as they're developing before they actually manifest themselves clinically. And, you know, that would even build another layer before the patient even calling the office. They would get a preemptive phone call and say, hey, we've noticed that your recovery isn't quite what it should be, or you were doing great. All of a sudden, you kind of fell off the chart. What happened? Yeah, no, absolutely. That would obviously be ideal. And it would almost be, you know, having a daily visit with your patient. That's basically what you would be doing, but virtually. And I think if I was a patient myself and I knew that the surgeon was watching my progress, A, I'd probably pay a little bit more attention to what I was doing, um, but B, I'd also probably have some comfort with that. We've got much more rapid recovery uh, pathways in place, and I think most patients are becoming more comfortable with that, but they all hear horror stories of someone who went home and then had something bad happen, and those all get shared amongst patient populations. And from a, a patient standpoint, being able to know that you know my surgeon's watching my recovery or my surgical team is watching my recovery from afar, even whether I'm at home or a rehab facility or anywhere else, I think that can go a long way to providing some comfort to patients for sure. Absolutely. Those are great points, Chad. We've talked about the value of these technologies across the board in the surgical practice, but um, one thing we haven't talked about yet is what about the cost? You know, it'd be great to have all these technologies available to everybody and in all practices, but at some point, We'll have to discuss what are the costs associated and, and what's the value equation in this uh, in this discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, because that's the bottom line, right? So if we aren't getting an outcome that's worth the investment, then none of these programs are going to move forward at all. So I think the, the cost question is difficult because, you know, in your practice, like you said, you have an integrated system and an integrated healthcare system that the, a very large system is bought into. A smaller practice, it may just be the group that's deciding what is the value for us, what is it that we can really improve by investing in one of these situations. And it's not just the surgeons, but nurses and administrators from the hospital, everyone have to be on the same board. And that includes talking to the insurance companies. I think a lot of insurance companies want surgeons and practices to have tools like this that can potentially decrease complications and improve patient satisfaction. So I imagine we're eventually going to start seeing more and more insurance companies mandate practices use this technology or potentially offer higher reimbursement rates if they are used by by a practice. The government's kind of already going into this general direction with some of the bundled care pathways that they have and some of the MIPS performance data. So I think that with the writings on the wall, honestly, that eventually these types of things are going to be expected from us as surgeons in our surgical practices to provide to patients. So I think insurance companies are going to kind of fall in line with that. Certainly, if 
the insurance companies are willing to provide a higher reimbursement or potentially mandate these and offer the surgical practices a specific type of patient engagement platform or an application that could be used. I think that's a, certainly a different discussion that a practice or a large administrative group could have as opposed to deciding, hey, do we want to pay for this out of our own pockets? Because the other cost of some of these platforms that are built in is there's a cost to the practice and that could get floated down to you as the surgeon yourself. And all of a sudden, because you're spending X number of dollars or X amount of dollars on a specific intervention or a specific platform, you're now become a higher cost surgeon. And if that platform isn't improving your patient satisfaction or decreasing your complications, uh, you're now becoming a little bit less desirable in terms of some of the metrics that we all look at when deciding where patients should go and how the practice and, and the surgical patients are doing overall. Because the overall goal is to improve the outcome and decrease the costs associated with the patient's episode of care. So as you mentioned, whatever a surgical practice or a surgeon invests in needs to make sure they uh, take care of that. Are you aware of any situations in which uh, surgeons or groups in which patient engagement platforms haven't worked out? So I've heard of a couple, and I don't think the failure was necessarily on the technology. I think it was probably a mismatch uh, in terms of what the surgeon group wanted to get out of that technology and what the technology was actually able to provide. And also, some patients and some surgeries, the patients just don't feel like they need the technology. And if they aren't using it, it becomes really hard to justify that that they should continue to invest in this. So I think that's really the main thing. And uh, again, it comes down to identifying what problems that you want to solve. So if you have a, a platform that makes it very easy for patients to communicate with you, but you already don't really have any patients that feel like they have a hard time communicating with you, then maybe you're not going to get the same bang for the buck as opposed to if you're at a practice and most of your patients are coming an hour and a half you know, to come see you, and that's a bit different, right? But if you live in a, a very large city and most of your patients are within a 10-mile radius, then maybe they aren't going to feel that same type of necessity to have something to communicate with you a little bit easier. Because by no means do I think that every surgeon or practice needs these platforms, and I think that's an important point to make. A lot of practices have great online resources and communication is already great. So that would make it maybe a little bit harder for practices to get a return on their investment. But I do find it hard to believe that any surgeon can't have better communication with their patients just because we're spread so thin most of the time with the different operations that we have going on and, and busy clinic schedules. So again, I, I think most practices would find a way to make that work. It's just a matter of making sure it doesn't cost too much. Absolutely. And I think the communication point is great. And I think uh, either Charles or Chad, on the flip side, do you think there's ever a situation, and I think I've heard of this happening a couple of times, where a practice has initiated something like a patient messaging platform, and all of a sudden there's too much communication going on between the patients and the providers, and it becomes overwhelming to the clinic and to the surgeon themselves, being sort of a 24-7 access directly from the patient to the surgeon. Have you encountered that or heard about that happening? Yeah, so I've, I've heard of that happening. Um, and I think that that's an important point to make, that just one component of these patient engagement platforms alone probably isn't enough to be efficient. You know, as I mentioned, I think that there should also be resources at the patient's fingertips for simple questions, for education. And then there should be specific indications for certain types of communication. So the patient should be made aware that, Messenger, for example, maybe is returnable within 24 to 48 hours. Any urgent matters, they need to call you, and anything emergent, they need to go to the ER. Just sort of common sense counseling for the patients 
to make sure they don't think that this is just an open line of communication that's going to be answered right away because I think that expectation is unreasonable and actually makes the technology a bad thing, not a good thing. Yeah, so you got to have a firm practice policy that patients are aware of. And I think that will make, you know, just like any other communication situation, there's boundaries. Um, patients have to understand those. And, and certainly if there's, there's an emergency, the patient can't rely on, you know, an app for, to, you know, fix that. They may have to go to the emergency department or come to the office directly themselves. I mean, I can say from personal experience that one of my practices before, uh, I had a patient uh, text me. I didn't realize the patient even had my number. And I found out they found it through some Google platform that I was a part of, but she texted me to, to cancel her surgery. So I didn't realize I had that open loop in my practice. And that was certainly not how I'd like to be in, informed of, of those types of things. So that was something that I was able to learn from a little bit earlier in my career in terms of trying to make sure that I'm not too accessible in terms of what personal information is out there. Because again, in the wrong hands, that could certainly be a problem. So, Charles, one of the things I, I wanted to, to ask you, because I think Sean mentioned this, is, or you mentioned this as well, and so did Sean, using patient engagement platforms for research, are these research opportunities thought of prior to getting the application, or are these thought of kind of after what you see, kind of what the data is and how usable it will be, both one or the other? How do you build your research based on these platforms? I think most of the platforms are so new uh, and the field is still evolving that we're really trying to figure out what the appropriate applications for it are. And, you know, maybe things like Messenger that are well-established are great, but we don't know yet if things like, uh, you know, wearable technology to monitor patients' activity or wearable braces to do virtual physical therapy visits, uh, we don't know if those uh, types of technologies are, you know, cost-effective, efficient, and well-received by the patients. So most of the research that we're doing right now is specifically looking at these sort of newer applications uh, that are available through some of the patient engagement platforms and determining, you know, are the patients actually going to use them? Are they feasible to use? And then finally, are they generating value? Uh, you know, are they, do they have the potential to decrease complications, uh, decrease costs while improving patient satisfaction? Okay. That's always been my question for, in terms of research applicability of some of these platforms is they create a lot of data, but if we don't know how to use that data, that makes it a little bit more challenging to create usable research questions off of. I know there's a couple of companies that are launching, you know, major wide scale efforts, multiple institutions collecting sort of, you know, what we describe as big data and then applying AI to see if they can figure out what data points are important and which ones aren't. Cause I think we really don't know at this point. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, and I, I would agree with you. And I've heard some people that talk about how uh, useful these platforms will be for research, and I, I think it's certainly a, a possibility, but I, I still don't think we have a, a firm vision of, of how to actually make that uh, actionable. And then the one other question I wanted to circle back with Sean on is you know, HIPAA compliance. A lot of these third-party platforms don't actually meet the level of security required in terms of you know HIPAA compliance. You're at a larger institution are you aware of how they ensure the HIPAA compliance is going on? Is that something that you guys talk about anytime a new feature is added, or do you just assume that the institution signed off on it and must be good? Well, we haven't used any third-party applications yet, and so all of our communication is done through our integrated uh, electronic medical record. So everything is within contained within each specific patient's chart. So um, we haven't run into the situation where we're trying to use an external platform to have any communication or patient data be sent through. But that's a, that's a great point. I think you definitely need to be concerned about HIPAA issues when using uh, things that are external to your system. Charles, any input on that? 
Yeah, it's been a big concern for the products that we're using for our research studies that had to go through our institutional HIPAA compliance offices. And they've had very specific requests as to what types of data are shared, whether it's identified, de-identified. And then all the companies that we've been working with all have the HIPAA stamp of approval that they've gone through all the security uh, protocols required for data management. Obviously, the more locations you have your own personal patient data stored, the higher the risk is that one of those gets breached. So I think moving forward, this is going to be a major concern for patients and providers. Okay. Sean, you mentioned that you've been using a lot of photographs. A lot of the times I've had trouble with some of the quality of those photographs. Have you had issues with that as well? Yeah, it can be a concern. A lot of times the real appearance of a wound can be very different from what it looks like on, a, for instance, say a cell phone picture. If the quality is so poor, then sometimes we'll have to circle back to the patient and ask them to take a different picture, maybe zoom out a little bit or zoom in and send a couple different versions of the picture sometimes with flash or without flash to get a, a better representation of what's actually going on. But even the back and forth time that it takes to get a better picture is still time saved as opposed to having the patient come all the way back into the clinic. So usually we're able to get a good enough quality picture to make a good clinical decision. But I agree, it's, it's a concern sometimes. I think one of my major concerns moving forward with these different types of technologies is that we have to make sure that the the quality of the data that we're getting out of them is good. So, you know, like you mentioned with the photos, you know, you can't just have someone in your office looking at photos and making decisions or even potentially early AI applications looking at it. I think it's really important that providers are still involved in interpreting and analyzing the data, which may actually increase the workload on surgeons. So, Chad, I've heard a lot of people say that you know, while these technologies have great potential, they feel like the EMR has created a lot of burden on providers. They feel like this is just one more thing that surgeons are going to have to do in their day is check on these applications. Have you heard of or seen of this problem anywhere in your practice? I think most surgeons already feel like they're overburdened, right? So I think that's a big concern for a lot of us. I think it's a big concern for nurses and MAs as well. We have a hard time keeping up with our daily requirements as it is. I think, you know, how Sean talked about before, how he's blocked out clinic time, um, it's certainly one uh, very promising avenue to actually delineate some time to, to take care of these tasks. So I can't say I have first care knowledge of you know, a surgeon getting so frustrated with the increased communication that they've quit using a platform, but I think it's certainly a concern. And if you don't have a streamlined way to take care of some of these tasks and messages, it's just going to become one more thing that you can fall behind on. Uh, and obviously that would not be good for patient care or communication. So I think it's a, that's a really valid concern, Charles. So I think a lot of us kind of ask ourselves that question anytime we're getting into this. And, you know, if this is going to end up taking up a significant portion of our day and we're going to dedicate a lot of effort to it as surgeons, I know that there's been new billing codes that have been released recently that can bill for virtual visits. Do you have any knowledge or experience on those, Chad? Yeah, basically the experiences, the insurance companies, they're really hard to get reimbursed for those codes. So I've talked to coders at a couple different hospitals about this, and it's really hard to, to get the reimbursement. So I think if you're looking at it as a way to improve billing or add one more layer to productivity, that's probably the wrong way to look at it, at least right now. It should probably just be looked at as a way to communicate with patients because you know, actually making a profit or being able to bill for these is quite challenging within its current form. Certainly that may change as, as things improve. But that's not what I'd look at right now. Yeah, it um, sounds like you the, know, the development and advancement of these technologies is probably going to be far ahead of the ability for insurance companies to provide 
reimbursement and codes. I think there's going to be a significant lag between the advancements in technology we have and, and the coding piece. Yeah, and I think that's why some insurances may just start providing these types of platforms themselves that gets rid of some of those problems that you bring up. So we're almost running out of time here, guys. Is there anything else, any other points that, that people want to make on this uh, topic? I think it's been a, a great discussion so far. Well, I think we've talked about so many different topics, and I think that just goes to show how much there is developing in this field. And it's going to be very interesting to see what data we can come up with that's uh, actually very meaningful and actually going to change some of our clinical practices. I'm encouraged to hear things like the research projects that Charles has going on that's going to help us uh, decide what's going to be important and what, what we can use to help improve our uh, efficiency and patient care. Yeah, I think this technology has enormous potential to decrease costs, increase value, and increase patient satisfaction, and I think ultimately improve patient outcomes. So it'll be really interesting over the next few years to see where this takes us. Yeah, I, I could agree more. And, you know, we did touch on a lot of different topics. Um, it, it's clear this technology is coming down the pike. How we're going to use it, I think, is going to take a little bit of time to sort out. But it, it's coming, and I think the quicker we can recognize this and figure out best practices to integrate it into our practices, I think we're all going to benefit patients, surgeons, and, and everyone else alike long into the future. So, Charles and Sean, I really wanted to thank you again for taking the time to come on and uh, have a discussion with us. I think this is, uh, our listeners are going to be uh, quite pleased with what we had to discuss. Yeah, thanks for well, having thanks me. Thanks for having us, Chad. Great discussion. Thanks. I look forward to having more. So, more to come for sure. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery. 